Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by cognitive neuroscientist Jamshed Baruka, president of the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art. The lecture, entitled The Alignment and Synchronization of Brain States Through Music, is part of the 2012 Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. Why do we have music? And uh, does it have any meaning? And what is its origin? Now, I'm not going to be able to answer those questions uh, uh, definitively, but what I will try to do is to weave together some ideas and a proposal that gets at some of these questions. Uh, but first, just uh, I want to introduce you to my brain. Uh, this was my very first uh, functional MRI brain scan. This was when uh, uh, we obtained at Dartmouth a MRI machine, and we were playing around with it. Now, my former student, uh, Aynor Menzel, who's in the audience, who's here at Yale, uh, can see that this is a pretty primitive uh, analysis. Uh, but I, I put it up for several reasons. One is to show the diversity of activation in the brain that you get when you listen to music. This is me in the scanner listening to music. The other is to really uh, show what my faculty up there wanted to see, which is that after I had crossed over to the dark side of administration, uh, I wasn't brain dead. <laughs> now, uh, although some of them uh, claim that the frontal lobes had shrunk a little bit, and every now and then uh, I do a little scan to, to demonstrate to the faculty that the brain has not completely atrophied. And, uh, but one of the things you do see is um, sort of a, a splash of activation. Often you read articles about a functional MRI uh, and the, the paper focuses on one particular locus of, of activity. And while that might be true statistically, um, it, it belies the fact that in most cases, a lot is happening in the brain. And in the case of music, certainly, it would be wrong to say that there is a music center uh, in the brain. So for example, you see uh, circled in green activity along the superior temporal gyrus, which is right around here, where you would expect to see because the circuits there are engaged in processing pitch. And fortunately, uh, mine are engaged while I'm listening to music. But you also see uh, some interesting things. I've circled here the corresponding slices on the right side, where you see no activation at all in the superior temporal gyrus. I, I say this only by way of uh, cautioning against putting too much into the left-right brain asymmetry as it pertains to music. Because in, in my case, in fact, there's nothing going on uh, on the right side. That's the left side up there. This is the right side in the auditory uh, cortex. Uh, but also, I'd like to draw your attention to activity here in the cerebellum of the brain back there, which is involved in fine motor uh, coordination. And there's a splattering of activity in, in some other areas that some uh, may notice. This is, again, a very preliminary scan. Uh, it was just really the first time 
uh, I was able to actually take a look at what might be going on. And I was very struck by the diversity, if you like, of brain faculties, cognitive faculties that are engaged while listening to music. So music is, is, music is multifaceted. I'll focus on three particular facets today, emotion, movement, and structure. Now, each is central to music in its own way that you can study on its own. But each also contributes by aligning, synchronizing, and coupling our brain states, which is really the theme, the proposal that I would like to advance uh, in the course of my talk. Why would we seek to synchronize our brain states? Well, because the proposal is that promotes group cohesion, promotes social cohesion. If members of a group or a culture or a subculture or a society uh, are coordinated or synchronized or aligned, or if their brain states are coupled in any way, they're able to essentially uh, create a sense of group agency. And they certainly feel that sense of group agency, which from an evolutionary point of view is an extremely powerful thing, not only for their own ability to, to survive, but also it's powerful from the point of view of other groups to see the kind of internal cohesion and group agency that's been formed within a group. <clears throat> now, most people think, most people outside the academy think music is about emotion. If you just randomly poll people and say, well, give me one word. What is music about? You probably will hear the word emotion or similar kinds of words. Now, clearly, music can communicate emotion. And there are at least two goals of emotional communication in music. One is expression, which is to signal that you're feeling a certain way. Another is elicitation, which is to seek to elicit a certain feeling in others. But there's also a, a increasing realization in, in work today of some very deep relationships between music and language, including, I would argue, in the communication uh, of emotion. And I'm going to talk about an experiment uh, published uh, just a few years ago with a former student and postdoc of mine, Megan Curtis, uh, in which uh, it was really her idea, uh, based on her observation, that when people speak, she can actually hear the melodic intervals from syllable to syllable. And when she first came to study with me at Dartmouth, I said, go away. This is rubbish. You know, it just can't possibly be true. And, uh, and she kept coming back, kept coming back. And, and uh, we, you know, we worked on this over a period of years. And, and uh, we're really quite stunned to see what you can now uh, analyze with some of the most, more recent uh, uh, kinds of software and hardware available for analyzing uh, speech. Some of these deep uh, similarities, which again have implications for evolutionary origins. Linguists would like to say, well, music has drawn upon linguistic cognitive capacities. But those of us who study music know, of course, it's got to be the other way around. Uh, because there was auditory communication, vocalization long before there was language. Uh, but needless to say, in this particular study, uh, we recruited uh, actors into the lab who spoke 
with different emotions. Why actors? Because it's very difficult to simulate emotion in a lab. Everybody who studies emotion knows that. Extremely difficult to create realistic emotion. But actors are trained to be able to express emotion. Um, and so we asked them to speak bisyllabic utterances, like, OK, let's go. Neutral, semantically neutral utterances. Why bisyllabic? Well, because you know, in science, you start small. And so we were just looking at one interval. And, uh, and we had them speak with each of four different emotions. Happy, pleasant, angry, sad. Why those four? Well, because in social psychology, uh, emotions are thought of as being in a two-by-two two matrix with arousal in one dimension and valence on the other dimension. So uh, some emotions are very highly arousing or highly energetic or intense. And we've got low and high. And then they're either positive or negative. So uh, high arousal, positive might be happy. High arousal, negative would be angry. Low arousal, positive would be pleasant. And low arousal, negative would be sad. And then we analyzed their uh, the intervals of the fundamental movement of the fundamental frequency of their voice from one syllable to the next approximated to the closest semitone. And uh, let me just play you a couple of examples. Uh, this is angry here. Let's Try it again. Let's go. Sad. Let's go. And this is the distribution of uh, intervals that we found uh, in their speech, which shocked me because it actually supported Megan's hypothesis, in particular, about sad speech. The graph, I hope you can all see it, in very light blue. Can you all see that in the back that has a peak here? That light blue is the sad distribution, which has a very, very distinct peak around a descending minor Third, these are in, in cents, where 1,200 cents you know, to an octave. Uh, and so overwhelmingly, the, the sad utterances were descending minor thirds. Uh, you see a peak for anger as well, which is an ascending minor <coughs> second. You see some other things going on here, which aren't statistically that important. The two positive emotions had no structure uh, to speak of statistically. And why might that be? Well, we, we speculated that it's much more important in an evolutionary context to accurately communicate and detect a negative emotion, because there could be very serious consequences, uh, whereas the same isn't necessarily true of uh, positive emotion. Now, um, but feelings communicated by music are more fine-grained than emotion. Music isn't just about sad, angry, happy, uh, pleasant. In fact, those emotion terms are extremely limited in talking about, uh, about music or talking about, in fact, the full spectrum of feelings or what psychologists call affect, the subjective component uh, of, of what you actually feel is a much more a much denser spectrum of feelings than is captured by the terms angry, sad, and so on. Uh, plus, uh, it can be argued, as some have, that many of the feelings 
or the things you feel, whatever they are, uh, when listening to music are uh, ineffable. And Diana Raffman has described them as ineffable feeling states. You might have a little musical gesture, which isn't angry, it's not sad, it's not happy, but, but uh, it feels a certain way. And you can't necessarily verbalize it, hence uh, it being called ineffable. But the spectrum of feeling states uh, is really infinitely dense. And so there's a tremendous amount that music communicates, even in terms of affect, that's not captured by the emotions uh, themselves. And um, there's a bit of a paradox when you listen, when you think about music and emotion, which is that this is taken from the internet. It's not a scientific study. It's just, it's, it's, it's some kind of music sharing website. They're making a point here is that when people are sad, they overwhelmingly listen to sad songs. So now it's very commonly believed that the extent that music uh, evokes emotion, that music can be used to regulate emotion. In fact, a lot of people uh, do that, claim to do that. And certainly, uh, I think there's you know, reasonable anecdotal evidence that music can be helpful in trying to create a certain emotion. But what is overwhelmingly true, and putting this non-scientific study aside, there have been studies in the developmental psychology and social psychology of music showing that when people are sad, they want to listen to sad music. They don't want to make themselves happy. In fact, the, easy, the best way to irritate somebody who's really, really sad is to say, oh, let's go to this uh, you know, let's see a movie. It's a happy movie. Or let's go listen to this piece of music that's oh so happy. It's extremely annoying. Uh, there is this tremendous desire to simply have your feelings affirmed and to quote unquote share your feelings with other people. Now, in the era of recordings, uh, the argument gets a bit more complicated uh, because one of the things some of the social psychologists who study this talk about is the, uh, the fact that the vast majority of the, the, the consumption of music is by teenage girls. And that uh, when they're sad or feeling rejected, they'll go off to their room and want to just sit by themselves listening to, to sad music. Well, so what, what are they, who are they sharing it with? Well, I mean, so let's, let's go to the pre-electronics recording world where you couldn't just use this sort of virtual way of sharing. In that context, you would, have had, you would have shared this experience with other people who were feeling that way. And certainly you see in, in, in many cultures, uh, there are traditions within the culture for mourning and for grieving you know, in groups uh, where instead of people trying to cheer you up, they're participating in, whether it's a wailing or some kind of ritual in which they are synchronizing their emotions and thereby enabling individuals who feel that way to feel uh, as part of a greater social agency. And that promotes group cohesion. Uh, the 
in, in social psychology, there's, there's a lot uh, of discussion about attribution. Uh, we have this strong need to attribute uh, observations or feelings to some cause. And when you have this sense of group consciousness or when you are sharing your experience with others or your brain states have been aligned in terms of the emotion or the affect, uh, this sense of agency gets attributed uh, to some force beyond the group. And certainly, religions have taken advantage of that to, to create cathedrals where you have this hugely resonant sound and people sing in chorus. And, and uh, there's this sense of attributing this powerful group agency feeling to some greater cause. Now, uh, beyond emotion, music promotes movement. And this is another area uh, in which music can serve to align or synchronize people's brain states, in this, in this case, quite literally synchronizing their movements. Uh, but even if they're moving in different ways, uh, synchronizing some of the brain states associated with, with movement. Now, uh, it's now known that even just listening to music passively activates some of the motor centers in the brain. You can actually be lying there quite passively in the, in the MRI machine, and you'll often see motor cortex activated and other motor circuits uh, activated. There's this sense in which even in the passive perception of music, the, the brain wants to move. Uh, armies uh, exploit this in terms of, of marching, synchronizing their movement, and often, again, using music as a way to get that synchronization. Um, I play amateur string quartets. Uh, quite a lot. And I remember when I first started doing that, uh, it was one of the most powerful experiences that I'd ever had, uh, being, playing with people. And if you play, if you're roughly equally matched, even though you're playing a, a lot of wrong notes and maybe playing badly in the ears of somebody who is just listening, among those who are actually playing, it's an incredibly invigorating experience. Because there you have also, the synchronization, you have the synchronization of, of movement. You have the synchronization of any of the affect-related things that are being generated by the music. And as I will argue, you also are synchronizing your brains in terms of the structure of music as you work uh, through it. Uh, I found that among amateur chain, chamber musicians who are very well networked around the world, one good evening of chamber music, and you're bonded for life. People show up to each other's funerals 20 years later, never having played with them. So powerful is this sense of group agency created by shared experience or aligned, uh, synchronized brain states. But what about structure? Now, music theorists and musicologists spend surprisingly little time talking about emotion and motion. Music theorists are focused on structure. Performers focus their practice on structure and microstructure, pitch, timing, phrasing. This shouldn't be surprising, since structured patterns of sound comprise the energy fluctuations that stimulate our auditory system. Uh, 
you can't communicate emotion directly in an unmediated way, at least not yet. Maybe someday if we can plug our brains into each other. But communication requires mediation through energy fluctuations that eventually are picked up by people's senses. So I have to produce an energy fluctuation through my speech or my movement, and somebody has to record it uh, in, in all five senses. And so communication is mediated by a code of some sort. Structured patterns of sound thus provide an information code that stimulates the brain in ways that induce emotion and movement. But musical structure is much more complex and nuanced than would be necessary just to elicit emotion or movement. Uh, Leonard Meyer uh, took to the next level our understanding of the relationship between structure and emotion. He proposed that violating expectations based on culturally established structural schemas was the foundation of meaning and emotion in music. Indeed, violating expectations does elicit emotional arousal, which is then interpreted cognitively as positive or negative based on an assessment of the situation. And that's a pretty normative uh, way of thinking about emotions uh, today. Uh, if expectations are violated, that's very arousing in an extremely physiological way. You know, adrenaline pumps through your system. And you or the organism immediately is looking to figure out what's going on and makes an interpretation of whether this is a positive or negative scenario. And that combination of arousal and cognitive interpretation then creates uh, uh, the emotion. But in order to violate expectations, you must first generate them by conforming just enough to established patterns so that violations are detected. So if you start performing a piece of music that has no relationship to any established uh, musical norm, you aren't going to be generating expectations. And if you can't generate expectations, you can't violate them. So what kinds of expectations am I talking about? Well, Leonard Meyer talked about expectations of harmony. If you have a sequence of chords, you expect certain chords. Uh, and you can play with those expectations by fulfilling them or violating them to varying degrees. And he would argue, he did argue, that that was sort of at the core of the aesthetics of music. You can have violations of expectation rhythmically, metrically, melodically, in all, all kinds of ways. But the brain must be able to recognize familiar patterns well enough in order to detect their violations. In other words, the culturally accepted patterns that you're violating have to have been represented or encoded by the brain for the brain to be able to detect the violations you know, in the first place. Now, is there evidence of this, that we learn, we acquire these culturally schematic patterns and that they're somehow encoded into the brain. Uh, well, um, my colleagues and I have done a fair bit of research on this for a while, approaching this problem from a variety of angles, really being interested principally in whether uh, people who haven't studied music formally, haven't taken music theory classes, and so don't really know what chords are and keys are and melodies are and so on, nevertheless have 
an extraordinary amount of that structure in their brains implicitly. So this is from a paper uh, that we published in Science in 2002. The lead author is Peter Janata, former postdoc of mine, who's now on the faculty at University of California, Davis. Uh, we played uh, melodic sequences to listeners. And a sequence would be in a key. And then it would be transposed to another key, and then to another key, and, and so on. So that all possible transitions, pairwise transitions, from each of the 12 major keys and 12 minor keys was included. So you went from every possible major minor key to every possible major minor key many times with different melodic sequences. And uh, we tracked the change in activation uh, in each pixel, each voxel, as they call it, of the brain, to see if it correlated with key distance. So music theory uh, recognizes a certain set of relationships between musical keys. So if you're in the key of C major, you frequently move to the key of G major, but only infrequently move to the key of F sharp uh, major. And so some of these transitions are more normative than others. And we wanted to see whether there were any circuits in the brain whose change in activity correlated with the uh, musical relatedness, the normative relatedness of these chords. And we found, in fact, uh, in the prefrontal cortex, these were the only circuits in the brain that actually correlated in this way. In other words, uh, those circuits have implicit knowledge, if you like, of these complex relationships between musical keys as they're used in, the, you know, in uh, music in the culture. The, the panel at the top uh, really shows some of the activation uh, that you get when you listen to music. But this is the key uh, result, because this shows the correlation with, with key distance. So yes, people have an extraordinary amount of implicit knowledge about very, very nuanced structural aspects of music, even if they haven't uh, uh, studied music theory. Now. Um, for those of you who, who aren't uh, musicians, just excuse some of the technical stuff here, but I just want to impart the gist. Musicians uh, often represent the relationship between keys uh, or chords in a certain way. And so if you look at the uppercase letters, those represent what's called the circle of fifths, the keys uh, uh, that are close in that circle are more often follow each other in real music than keys that are far apart along that circle. There's also another circle that represented by lowercase uh, letters, which represent the minor keys. And there are relationships uh, not only among major keys and among minor keys shown by each by a circle, but relationships between major and minor keys. And if you try to reconcile all of those pairwise relationships, that, that uh, cannot be represented as, as a circle. That's represented as a torus in four dimensions. Uh, the key relationships are wrapped around this. And, and a lot has been written about this. Historically, a torus is essentially a donut 
whose inner and outer perimeters are equal. And so if, if you fold a piece of paper like that, and then you try to fold it so that this edge meets that edge, the paper crumbles because the paper is in three dimensions. But in four dimensions, uh, you get a torus. And what we found really quite uh, to our surprise is uh, toroidal uh, uh, receptive fields of some of the voxels uh, over here. So if you look at, uh, we've divided the voxels up into three colors, pink, blue, and yellow. Uh, go back to the previous slide for a minute. Uh, based on regions around the circle of fifths. Uh, because we couldn't get the complete granularity of all of the keys. So we simply looked at three regions that represented three segments around uh, the circle of fifths for major and the circle of fifths for minor, and therefore segments around the surface of the four-dimensional torus. And what we've plotted here, um, it's hard for me to see here, so I'll have to look up here. If you look at a blue at the very top left, a blue voxel that's blown up, its receptive field is blown up. As you take the melody through different keys, 24 major and 24 minor keys, uh, you see a landscape, if you like, uh, uh, that represents the receptive field of that voxel so that if you match up the left this left edge with the right edge, uh, they're continuous. And you match up this lower edge with the edge at the top, they're continuous, which is really a four-dimensional toroidal surface represented functionally, not physically, but functionally in, in the brain. And you see that for the three different segments of, this, of uh, the circle with the blue voxels, with the yellow voxels, and the pink voxels corresponding to different segments uh, around that. Now, how could something like this have been learned? Well, first of all, you could ask, you know, is it innate? And there are reasons why uh, one can conclude that it's not, at least not entirely uh, innate. But um, this kind of structure can be learned through certain kinds of models called self-organizing models or self-organizing maps. And uh, I realize that these kinds of models are are uh, controversial in cognitive science, but I think they really actually uh, are, are very, very successful in certain aspects of perception uh, where certain uh, language-like syntactic constraints don't need to be modeled. So let me give you just a little bit of a quick go-through on how something like this could be learned. If you start off uh, with neuronal uni units that represent or are tuned to specific features and in the case of the auditory system, every level of the auditory system has neurons that are actually tuned to specific frequencies, like a harp. And if, if you play a tune, those neurons fire, and others fire less. So it, it's a biologically uh, based uh, constraint on this model. And imagine that you have uh, units at, at another layer, and the, 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 the nervous system is basically layers of, neur of neurons. Uh, another set of units at another layer that is not pre-tuned innately, but it's sort of waiting to be tuned by the world, by the environment. And that tuning occurs by changing the strengths of the connections between uh, 
these units. And if the connections are initially randomly set, and, you, and you, certain features occur in the environment that activate the, the neuronal units that are tuned to those features, activation spreads initially just randomly to the next level. But some one unit is going to win. And the brain has a lot of these winner-take-all circuits based on lateral inhibition. The way these models learn is by strengthening the connections between the, the features that are activated and the winning unit and weakening some of the other connections so that eventually you end up with a second layer that represents, that, that's tuned, if you like, to not just individual features like frequency, but to entire objects, in this case, chords. And you can do the same thing from chords to keys. And I'm going to move through this very quickly. So once the model has learned, you have tones that propagate activation to chord units, then to key units. And if you were to play three tones commonly occurring together, say C and G, that activates certain pattern of activation at the next layer, which then propagates to the next layer. And then you have bottom-down processing, I mean, uh, top-down processing, which is the influence of knowledge on perception, how your prior knowledge that you've accumulated actually then filters the way you hear tones, which propagates downwards and actually fills in some of the tones that are implied but don't actually occur, creating expectations. And you can measure these expectations using pretty well-tried methods in cognitive psychology, like priming and reaction time, which, which we have done. Uh, what happens is just playing the three tones, C, E, and G, at the chord units and the key units, you get a, a very smooth grade of activation that goes around the circle of fifths. And using a priming or reaction time measure, you, get, you can actually measure that. And it turns out that, that over 90% of people actually show those, those gradients of activation, whether they've studied music theory or not. Uh, now, in certain variants of these self-organizing models that are called self-organizing maps, the units that are becoming tuned to objects like chords or keys themselves form some kind of geometric configuration. And in this case, they form a uh, circle of fifths. This is from a paper in Psychological Review. Uh, and this model makes predictions. The only reason to have a model is if it can make predictions that are counterintuitive or wouldn't have been made otherwise and which you can test. So one of the things this model allowed us to test is how do we know that this implicit knowledge and the structure in the brain is a result of cultural learning and not just because of the physics of sound. Okay? Uh, the acoustics of sound consists of harmonics and so on. And actually, many would argue uh, converges so nicely on the structure of harmony that there's got to be some truth to it. But what we would argue is it's not enough. How do we know? Well, this model makes a prediction. The prediction goes as follows. If I play a, a, the C chord, C major chord, well, it actually, uh, G is most likely to follow it, D is less likely to follow it, A is less likely to follow it, and so on. So expectations go monotonically around the circle. Well, that's strange, because the C chord actually consists of the tones C, E, and G, and the E chord consists of E, 
G sharp and B. And so they actually share a tone. So you think that this would prime that more than it does, say, this, because these two chords don't share tones. Okay, so you have a conflict between spectral similarity or the, 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 the physical acoustic commonality between chords versus a cultural regularity in terms of which chords or keys might follow each other. And we can pit those against each other. So the model, uh, again, don't, I just want you to sort of get the broad brush gist of this. Um, if you play to that uh, self-organized map, the model, the tones C, E, and G, and you look at the trajectory of activation for the, that newly acquired D chord unit versus the E chord unit, you see the E chord unit gets active very quickly because it actually shares some acoustic elements, in this case the tone E, with the chord that you played. But, so initially, acoustic similarity has an advantage in terms of expectations uh, over the cultural norm. But then they cross over very fast in a matter of uh, you know, 30 to 50 milliseconds, as we were able to test in, in an experiment that we published. Again, don't go over the details, but you can see the, the, the red and the blue lines crossing over. So the instantaneous expectation is for something that's acoustically similar to what you've just heard. But then that's very quickly overridden by a cultural expectation based on the normative transition probabilities with which one thing follows another in music. Uh, I have a similar example of this using Indian music. Uh, in the interest of time, I'll skip over that. And if you have a question, uh, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, let me just go uh, to a conclusion. Um, so why the ability to learn structural systems that are highly constrained yet infinitely productive? I've always worried about this. Uh, if music is essentially about emotion, affect, mood, and movement, why, why, why do we as a species have this extraordinary ability to learn these complex structural patterns which enable us to develop expectations that we can then either fulfill or violate? Okay. To our knowledge, I mean, uh, this, this is uh, infinitely productive in the sense of the word that's used in linguistics, generative. You can compose an infinite number of pieces based on these same constraints. Uh, why, why, why would so much brain neural machinery be devoted to allowing people to organize themselves into cultures or subcultures that then share these, these structural constraints upon which they can infinitely uh, produce you know, variation? Um, and if it's all about just being able to come up with a st cultural structural template that creates expectations that you can violate so you can get this arousal and get this sort of emotional you know, thrill, why would one expectancy violation differ from another one? 
So the violation that you get from violating a certain structural pattern, why would that feel different from the violation you get from violating another structural pattern? So I would argue that while expectancy violation uh, is really, as Leonard Meyer proposed, a core aspect of the aesthetics of music, it doesn't capture the entire utility of structure uh, in music. There's just too much going on structurally, and too much uh, that we can attend to structurally to account for structure itself as a shared cultural uh, element. And so what I would like to leave you with is that music and musical pieces and musical phrases don't have to mean anything. There are many people who say the meaning of a musical phrase is an emotion or a feeling. Well, it might be true, but I don't think it's necessarily true. It doesn't have to mean anything the way in which a proposition in language means something or a word in language means something. That's fundamentally flawed. I think that simply sharing the neural representations of, of culturally shared structures enables us to be synchronized. And the synchronization of our brains, the synchronization of the things that we're attending to, even if it's just structural activation of the brain and not feeling something or moving, also has this ability to promote social cohesion. So I'll leave you with that and uh, take questions. Thank you. This lecture was presented as part of the Distinguished Shulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities, established to honor Robert Shulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. The 2012 Shulman Lectures are organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar, Music and Human Evolution which investigates the formation of human capacities for music making and music perception in the light of recent evolutionary science and theory. The course is taught by Gary Tomlinson, professor of music and humanities. Professor Baruka spoke on February 21, 2012 at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center.